So we uh, this morning come to the second half of chapter 7. And we talked about this first half last week and we'll be talking about referring to the first half several times in the sermon. Um, but let me read this second half of uh, chapter 7 beginning in verse 9. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in excuse me in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice salvation belongs to our god who sits on the throne and to the lamb and all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come I said to him sir you know and he said to me these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now, uh, as often is the case, when I finished preparing my sermon, it was too long. And so uh, I, had, I have to then turn into a butcher. And uh, so the, uh, I've cut a, several sections out, but I just want to tell you that they're in the notes. Um, and the first one is about the context of this and uh, I just want to give you my conclusion and then my reasoning is in the notes if you're interested in finding out more. But I take this as a vision that depicts the intermediate, intermediate state. That is the time between um, when believers die and when Christ comes again. So it is heaven, but it's not the final state. It is uh, the state in which saints are in paradise with Jesus but their bodies are not yet fully resurrected the vengeance of God has not fully been poured out upon his enemies and there is not yet a new heavens and a new earth now as I've said Revelation 7 has two parts and the next thing I would like to talk about is how the two parts fit together how do they relate to one another? Last week in 1 to 8, we, talked, we saw the 144,000 from the tribes of Israel. 
which we said was a symbolic number of all the elect of God. And they were being sealed by God to protect them from any harmful effect of the earthly tribulations of the first four seals, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And yet here in the second half of chapter 7, beginning in verse 9, we find a great multitude which no one can number from every nation, from all tribes, peoples, and languages, standing before the throne, crying out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now the immediate thing that grabs our attention is the change from 144,000 Israelites to a great number that no one can count from every nation, tribe, and language. Now 144,000 is a large number, but it is not a number no one can count. If the 144,000 and the innumerable uh, multitude are the same group, and I think it's clear that they are, then how can we explain the strange transition from a limited number of Israelites to an unlimited number composed of all people groups? Well, this question puzzled Bible students generation after generation until a generation ago when an Anglican New Testament scholar and professor named R.J. Baucom noticed something others had missed. Baucom noticed that there are a lot of similarities between Revelation 5 and Revelation 7. That the relation between the two groups in Revelation 7 that don't seem to fit very well together are very parallel to the relationship between the lion and the lamb in chapter 5. And of course, Jesus is the lion and he's the lamb. So Baucom noticed the same pattern here in Revelation 7. John is told about the 144,000 of Israel and he turns and he sees a great multitude which no one can number from every tribe, nation, people, and language. Just as in the Old Testament God promised a lion messiah who came in the form of a lamb, so in the Old Testament God promised a great Israelite nation but it came in the form of an innumerable multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language. So I would commend that insight to you as the explanation and also a marvelous, um, mind-blowing uh, insight into the into the reality of the people of God, especially in terms of redemptive history. So now I'd like to just talk about the more practical side of this passage. Um, what does it say about our lives? 
You know, Revelation begins, the first verse of Revelation tells us that the book will show God's servants the things which must soon take place. And this morning's passage tells us two important things about what will soon take place. About one, about what our life on earth will be like, and then one on what our next life will be like in heaven. First, it tells us about what's going to be happening during our lives on the earth. Verse 14 says that these saints have come out of the great tribulation. Referring to the period of time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. When the four horsemen wreak havoc on the earth. So basically, this life that we're living now, this age, is called the great tribulation. It's a time when God's people experience all kinds of pressures to compromise the truth of Christ. To compromise their faith. These pressures come both through persecution from the unbelieving world and they also come from the, the, within the Christian community through seductive false teachings. The Great Tribulation began with the crucifixion. And Jesus taught us clearly that we would follow in his footsteps. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. John 15, 20. And remember how John introduces himself at the very beginning of this book. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. We are all brothers and partners in the tribulation and in the patient endurance that is in Jesus. That Jesus had, that he demonstrated, and that he helps us to have as well. And not only is it a time of tribulation, but God very much wants us to know and remember that it's a time of tribulation. This is one of the New Testament's common refrains. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world, John 16.33. Through many tribulations we will enter the kingdom of God. Or we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul said in Acts 14.22. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.12. This life is the great tribulation. This is here. Along with the reference to tears in verse 17. To help set our expectation of what this life will be. But in the face of this grim reality, the Bible gives us many encouragements, many truths which buoy us when life seems to drown us. The Lord is with us in our trials. The Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. The Lord comforts us in all our afflictions. The Lord uses our afflictions to make our hearts pure. And an important one of these truths that God has given us is about what's going to happen next. 
Though the great tribulation is mentioned here in verse 14, the primary thrust of this passage this morning is to tell us as we are in the midst of the frustrations and perplexities about the ter- that he, he tells us about the terrific place that all this is leading to the intermediate state and how gracious it is of God to give us this vision of what happens at the end of the race at the end of the fight to those who die in Christ and what is happening to those who have gone before us who are already there now we know that, we, that they don't yet have new bodies. We know that they don't yet live in the new heavens and the new earth. That they haven't yet witnessed the vindication of God's name on the earth when every knee shall bow. We also know that from what Jesus said, that they're with him in paradise. And from Hebrews 12.23, that they've been made perfect. We already learned from Revelation 6, 9-11, that they're resting. And that they're in communication with God. But here in verse in Revelation 7, we're told some very precious things about life in this intermediate paradise. So let's just walk through the whole rest of our time today. I'd like to walk through things that we're told in this passage about the life that is to come to all those who die before the Lord returns. And all those who have died in Christ before now first of all it says that they are before the throne of God so they are close to God in his very presence they no longer walk by faith they walk by sight he is right there for them to see they serve him day and night in the temple So this is not a place of holy inactivity. The saints are in God's presence, but they are doing things. Yet they don't grow tired in doing them. They are serving the Lord day and night. Thirdly, they're being sheltered by the one who sits on the throne. The way that the language says it here is there sheltered by his presence scholars say that the language here is similar to when Ruth asked Boaz to spread his garment over her it implies intimacy and here we see that the saints in heaven are not embattled they are secure at home with the Lord Secure in his arms like a baby snuggling with his mama or her mama. Fourthly, we're told they are crying out with a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now mind you, they're not saying this with a normal voice. They're crying it with a loud voice. They are excited. They are thrilled. They are fully engaged. This is not just worship. This is exuberant celebration. They are grateful, worshipful, joyful, in awe. Before death, 
They were straining, fighting, laboring. Now they are in full celebration mode. He did it. And this implies that their eyes and hearts have been opened to the magnificence of Christ and what he has done. They can see clearly now. No longer are their minds dull. No longer do they view Jesus as through a glass dimly. They see him face to face in his triumph and in his grace. Thralled with him. Enraptured with him. The, as the hymn says, the dimness of their souls has been taken away. Now, I'm a, on Friday night, you know, there was a little Fairleigh Dickinson University upset, uh, mighty Purdue University in the uh, college basketball, and one of the greatest upsets of all time, if not the greatest upset. And you can imagine what those guys were like after the game was over. They were beside themselves. They were bursting with celebration. And I couldn't but think of the passage that I was preparing to preach about this very thing. They're crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The fifth thing that we're told is that they hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. These folks are satisfied and well supplied. When Jesus said in Luke 60, Luke 6, 21, Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Now this has come to pass. Now, few, if any of us, have spent seasons of our lives wondering where our next meal is going to come from or how our family will be fed today. Few know much of life-threatening thirst. For the many who live this way virtually every day of their lives, imagine what it sounds like that there will no longer be any hunger or thirst the great burden of their life is over. But even we experience unsatisfied longings and unfulfilled desires. And there will be none of that in heaven. The, is that they're being shepherded by the Lamb who, give, who guides them to springs of living water. These saints are no longer uncertain. There's no more wandering or wondering about what to do, trying to figure out where they should go and what they should do next in their lives. They're being well tended to, well provided for, and well taken care of. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That has come to be fulfilled here in perfect measure and here there's an irony they're being shepherded by a lamb shepherded by a lamb the seventh the sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat 
Now where we live, we don't experience this as much as they did and as much as those in the Middle East do. But all of us have gotten at least a taste of the oppressive onslaught of sun and heat. The Bible actually talks about this experience quite a bit. But I would guess this is not literal. Why would disembodied souls need air conditioning? The point is that in heaven there's nothing to bother us. Sometimes in life it seems like we're under constant pressure, constant strain, a constant sense of being bombarded. How many times do you hear people talk about their life and describe it in that kind of language? Heaven will mean relief, rest, safety, comfort. The next one is clothed in white robes. And uh, we're given two explanatory helps with this. Just a few chapters earlier in Revelation 3.18, Jesus said to the church of Laodicea, Buy from me white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And this, of course, stirs memories of the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve first sinned and were ashamed of their nakedness and covered themselves with fig leaves, but then God came and brought them garments of animal skin with which to cover themselves. But now, God provides not just animal skins, which are a raw picture of having sins covered by the death of a lamb, but white robes. And how were they white? Well, we're given that information in verse 17. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And here's another irony, isn't there? Blood stains white clothing. But this clothing is made white by washing it with blood. This, these ironies are designed to catch our attention and make us really look at what's going on. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Here we see the gospel. That our sinfulness is covered by the atoning work and righteousness of Christ. In him we are made beautiful. We sang about this last week. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are, my glorious dress. Or to put it plainly, Jesus, your blood and righteousness are my beauty and my glorious clothing. In heaven we are clothed with Christ. We are made beautiful. All the blemishes and imperfections are covered over. All the scars and deformities are invisible. 
the glory of Christ covers us. The next one is that God wipes away every tear from their eyes. Now this is more than that there's no longer any reason for tears. He himself will wipe away our tears. These aren't present tears which he wipes away. They are past tears. Tears we shed while we lived on earth. Even the ones that we no longer remember shedding and yet there's still grief that has settled in our souls. And he brings them all back up. He addresses all our hurts. He heals all our wounds. He comforts us in everything that we went through in life that was hard. And helps us to see what was going on. And how it benefited us. And how now it brings us happiness and joy. Now this implies that in heaven we will be surveying our earthly lives. Presumably being given understanding of why things happened the way they did. And we'll see how God was caring for us while we were experiencing suffering or trauma. We will be experiencing the comfort of God regarding our tears shed on earth. And again, I, uh, in case this is helpful, uh, I commend to you the conversation between Aslan and Shasta as they walked along the road in C.S. Lewis's Narnia tale, The Horse and His Boy, which I think gives us a great glimpse of the kind of conversation that we'll be having with the Lord in heaven as he reveals the wonderful redemptive purposes of all the hard things we've ever gone through. One other final thing that we see in this uh, chapter about, or this section of the chapter about our life in heaven is that uh, these saints are together. They are not alone. They are close to God and close to so many others. Their, Their loneliness and their aloneness are a thing of the past. They are a part of a gigantic forever family where they find acceptance and fellowship and unity and belonging. They are truly home for the first time in their lives. Diversity, of course, is part of what makes the scene painted here one of joy and anticipation. Remember that God was the one who created human diversity. He was the one who created various languages which divided mankind into many people groups. And just as he separated mankind at the Tower of Babel, so he is now beautifully bringing all those diverse people groups together in his son. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus, Paul tells us in Galatians 3.28. If we went to heaven and found out that everyone there was like us, intellectually or ethnically or financially or personality-wise, it would be patently sad. 
It would mean that Jesus was only Lord for one particular kind of person. But you see, it is too light a thing that Jesus should be merely should merely raise up the tribes of Israel or bring back the preserved of Jacob. God has made him a light for the nations that his salvation may reach to the ends of the earth, which is a paraphrase of Isaiah 49.6. Jesus shows us his power and glory by being the savior of people in every age and from every place on earth. And when we're in heaven, we will have the great privilege of knowing and worshiping Jesus beside fellow believers from every people group on earth. And apparently, from this passage, we maintain our ethnic distinctives in heaven. Diversity is not a dirty word. You may disagree with how some use this word. But if you believe the Bible, you must believe in the glory of diversity. God doesn't show favoritism. Our group is not the group. But often, this is not easy on earth. Even after living with Jesus for three years, even after seeing the Holy Spirit provoking believers to speak in languages from every nation under heaven, and even after a vision designed to show him that other peoples should be part of Christ's kingdom and not just the Jews, Peter still had trouble with it. Was this because Peter was an extremely bigoted person? Was he like somebody in the KKK? No, Peter was just a normal man. But normal people prefer their own kind. And don't always have the right attitude toward people of other groups. But Christ transforms us. He helps us to welcome others just as he welcomed us. Romans 15, 7. And if you want to be part of Christ's kingdom, you've got to not only get used to those from all tribes and peoples and languages, you've got to learn to worship with them and love them and treasure them. Rejoicing when they rejoice and weeping when they weep. And celebrating them as your forever family. As most of you know, our church has a special connection with a group of new believers in West Africa. That only a few of us have had, ever had a chance to meet. One of our own is there ministering Christ to them. And marvelous things have happened and actually, I'll be giving you an update during the announcements this morning. But the things, the thing which most enthralled those people as they heard about Christ at first was that he specifically loved their people group. You see, they are a despised people, often mistreated, treated as worthless, even killed for no good reason. And when they heard that Jesus loved their people group and had a special place in heaven for their people group, in this great multitude that no one can number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, this meant the world to them. And they embraced Christ with great enthusiasm. And this is why our love as a congregation has meant so much to them. 
in their experience, other people groups despise them. And now they hear that Jesus actually loves them. And they hear that there's some group of people across the ocean of Christ, that belong to Christ who love them as well. And you know what they want to do now? They want to tell other people groups about this Jesus who wants even the people groups that no one else wants. That they might come also to know him and to worship him. So, what glorious picture we're given here. There's so many things we're not told. And the things that we're not told, we don't need to know. The things that we're told are the things that we should cling to and cherish and look forward to. As we go through the strain and the struggle and the stress of this life, this picture helps us and reminds us that it's actually a short time and that soon we will be with Christ here among the multitude. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for all the ones who have gone before us, whose lives remain an encouragement and an inspiration to us, who are now with Jesus in paradise. We thank you, dear Lord, for the great promise that when we finish the race, we will be with him as well. And dear Lord, we pray that when our arms grow strong and our spirits grow dim, that we would often remember these ones who have gone before us and the glory and the joy and the fullness that they are experiencing now and how they're waiting for us. Oh Lord, may we be given strength to finish the race with perseverance, keeping our eyes on Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.